Greetings, gentle listeners. Welcome back to Loserville. Uh, Philip Kingston here in Dallas. I think Tyler's also in Dallas, but because of logistics for today, we're recording remotely with a name that Loserville listeners will remember, a repeat guest, uh, although one who has many new things to report to us, the great Deandrela Alexander, otherwise known as Dee Dee. Hey, Dee Dee. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. We're excited to see you. Little not a lot has changed since the last time we talked. So yeah, like I'm really excited to kind of get you guys caught up. We haven't gotten a chance to, to kick it, Phil. Like invite me back over. What's up? I will. I <laughs> do. It, it, it's not a problem. Like the 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 numbers that that Dee Alexander does on on the internet are perfectly acceptable. Our advertisers have no problem. <laughs> with as many D.D. Alexander episodes as, as we want to do. Do you live in 10th Street now? I don't live there now, but I will live there soon. Really? Mm-hmm. Is, is there more to that story that you want to share? I'm not trying to pressure you to give away the location where people will kidnap you, as we learned from <laughs> Elon Musk. Well, there's no house there to kidnap us at. It's it's a lot. Um, so gotcha. uh, we will live there soon when there's a house at some point. Um, but we're got some logistics to work out here, a couple of things to sign. But yeah, we will we will be moving that way when when we get a structure in place. So you're gonna build new in 10th Street and comply with the historic district? Yes, uh, we love rules around here, obviously. <laughs> that is so cool. I am trying to get a lot in a different historic district in Dallas right now uh, to do an affordable project. And um, I am going to have to do my very best sales job to get, to get this thing done. Well, Phil, you can always ask me. I'm a I'm a expert saleswoman these days, so happy to I help. Hear. <laughs> um, so no, um, we're, we're really excited and, you know, we are, our plan was always to build a historic type. Uh, so, you know, craftsmen, which is in, in style with what was going on when it was initially founded, but also we want to make it a multifamily so that we can help with the affordable housing situation in Dallas. That is very much so we're living that practice that's, uh, deeply ingrained into our relationship. So that's, that's the plan. <laughs> Well, Melissa, and enacted values. We appreciate that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're big on Melissa that. Melissa and I have uh, are operating at this point for four affordable units in our portfolio, which is only nine units. So actually, a, a significant percentage a of the portfolio is yeah, quite that's affordable. a big piece. <laughs> you know, I don't understand. I just had this conversation with the lady on the plane who was not that friendly but um about why people just you know discriminate on affordable housing units they they are both helpful to the society and the community and also can you know be something that is sustainable financially so glad to hear that you guys are in the game this this we're here for the small the small guy well i i know the answer to that question if you if you want to hear it i i, I suspect you know it also <laughs> i would love to hear i'd love to hear you say it all right well um, Dee Dee, this is not relevant to any other thing that she is doing, but she is black. And, uh, the reason that people don't like affordable housing is because black people live there. 
That is exactly the answer that I have been coming up with. It doesn't make financial sense the way that they treat them. But yeah, it's a lot of uh, just racial discrimination is why people don't accept vouchers and, and affordable housing. And it's really sad because it just, you know, from a financial and ethical perspective, it's definitely the right way to go. Okay, so we we had a little off-air discussion of this. We are sad that your other half is not with us today. But, th I mean, just give our listeners a little bit of update on what the two of you have been up to. Because I, I think it's freaking great. It's something that Tyler saw and was like, let's get them on. So tell, tell us what you're up to. Besides your normal nine to five, all the other stuff that you're doing. More, nine to five stuff is way more boring than what we're doing after we get off work. So uh, one, my husband, Adam Lamont, is a, he's a teacher and a baseball coach and it's baseball tryouts, which is why he's not here. Um, so I'm, I'm going to do my best to give you a description of what we do. Um, so we actually founded a group uh, called Neighbors for Housing. It's a Dallas advocacy housing group here. Um, we actually, so we got married on December 30th and Neighbors for Housing got started like January 4th. So this is essentially our baby. Um, like we, it wasn't a week later where my husband was like, he waited till I could like not say like, you know, it's like, oh, you're stuck with me now. Let, can we start a housing group? Um, no, but it, it actually was born out of, um, well, one, my run for, for city council and housing was a big part of the of some of the things that we care about, homelessness and things like that. So it's always been something that we're passionate about. My husband spends an inordinate amount of time looking at parking minimums, like he's all into that stuff. <laughs> um, and so the last straw was actually, he was, um, he's, a, he's a teacher and they had a, um, a listening session for the neighborhood they were there was a proposal to put some half a million dollar townhomes near his school and all of the people in the three million dollar homes came out the nimby showed up and were like we don't want those poors living next to us um everyone who lives in dallas knows that half a million dollar townhomes are definitely not affordable and definitely for uh, upper middle class folks but uh they they came out very strongly those nimbies were really organized they came out um and and they they got it blocked right and so my husband was seeing that this it was happening at a school so he like listened in on some of that stuff and he just was like we need to counteract this uh this kind of negative ag advocacy against housing like we have to put housing in a lot of different places and a lot of different types of housing all over Dallas and uh you know quite frankly we live in the north like northern sector folks nimbies are like super organized and show up and kill um developments and so that was kind of the the impetus for my husband to ask me to help him start this group um and so that's how uh neighbors for housing got started was that the two of us were just like well let's do something about it um we actually are a chapter of yimby action which is a national group they're mostly in california we were the very first chapter in texas um of YIMBY congratulations action. So that's always gets to be a feather in our cap. And uh, yeah, so mostly what we do is, is that we, uh, you know, Adam is a, a fiend for uh, staying up late on and listening to CPC meetings and, you know, looking at council agendas. And, <laughs> we, and it's actually kind of, there's like this week with the 345 thing, I literally am laying in bed and he just goes, shit. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and like, oh, it's on the agenda. So that's what we do is we we watch for those things and we watch for developments and we we go and advocate for more housing. Like that is a big thing for us, particularly in the northern sectors that often get squashed by YIMBY, or by NIMBYs. So that's that's kind of how we operate. We do have some kind of related uh 
things that we care about like land usage and zoning and parking minimum. So one of the very first things we did was have uh, former city staffer um, Pam Thompson come out and talk to us about the uh, Dallas One Options house plant, housing plan, which did a lot of work around um, uh, eliminating parking minimums and things like that for certain developments. So uh, we actually had her come speak and then we actually spoke at city council in favor of, of passing it, which it did. Um, and that was like about a month into our our group being founded. So that was a pretty big win pretty early. So yeah, that's kind of what we are. We're just here to be the guys who are voicing for housing, but not only for ourselves, obviously me and my husband are, you know, building a house and live in Dallas, but there's a lot of people who need housing, who can't show up at those meetings and speak. And that's who we're there to represent. You know, Didi, I would to go back to that theme of, you know, espousing and enacted values. One of the things I enjoyed reading about on the website was that, you know, you are an example of how good housing policy works, right? So you were actually able to purchase your first home through uh, utilizing the Dallas Mortgage Assistance Program and the Neighborhood Lift Down Payment Assistance Program, um, which I think is awesome. Uh, do you want to share a little bit about what your experiences were like through those programs or what they were able to let you do? Yeah, of course. So um, yeah, no, this is like so, so personal for me um, for that exact reason. So uh, when I graduated from graduate school, I was a broke grad student. Um, and with a lot of student loan debt and not a very high paying job because I'm a therapist. <laughs> and uh, so I actually qualified for the neighborhood lift program. Um, what they do is they offer down payment assistance for you. So I got a $15,000 grant, which again, the down payment is usually what keeps low income people from, from buying homes. It's not that they can't afford to pay the mortgage. Their mortgage is probably less than their rent, right? It's that down payment. So to, it eliminated that barrier for me for that down payment with that down payment assistance. Um, and then I was able to, you know, I had to go through the same qualifying process that everyone does, credit check, et cetera, et cetera, income. Um, and um, then they gave me a letter and they said, find a house. It has to be in the city of Dallas. It has to, of course, you have to qualify it from a financial perspective. And then you have money to put a down payment on it and, and get going. So uh, I actually, that's how I, my house that I currently live in, it's been almost nine years since I've been here. Um, I, I've been here because of that program. Um, and then the, the Dallas uh, Mortgage Assistance Program actually helped with my closing costs. So I actually did not even have to come out of pocket on the closing costs, which can sometimes be a barrier for low-income folks as well. Um, and the only stipulation for both of those programs was I had to live in my house for five years. I'm about to hit double on that. I am very happy don't, don't, uh, that was not a hard stipulation to follow. And uh, yeah, and it just shows you, you know, like my trajectory as a person is like very much so um, shaped by the fact that I had a stable house that to live in and where I didn't have to worry about my rent going up or, or things like that. And um, I've been able to be very ingrained in this neighborhood and made great friends, um, you know, so it's it's been really, it really was life-changing. And that's why I know that housing policy when done right can work. Like I am the the living proof. That's really awesome. Um, I think it's just a really cool example of those how those programs work and ones that I think probably Loserville listeners may know about, but folks uh, I feel like probably don't know enough about programs like that that exist out there. Does either. the down payment get amortized into the remaining payments or is it a grant? It's a, it's a separate lien actually with 0% interest that is paid off over Sweet. five years. Okay. Yep. So I have I had. Oh, so you're out from you're out from under the the down payment debt. That's pretty cool. That's like uh, that's way better than uh, PPI. Um, you know, Texas has this bizarre constitutional 
provision that requires uh, buyers to have 20% equity in a residential house. And we did a little bit to relieve that many years ago. But in general, uh, lenders now, after the the housing crisis, um, want 20%, they, they want 80% loan to value. Um, right. And so they, they, they're, there's a way to get out from under 10% of it by buying um, uh, mortgage insurance. Right. Um, and, and people do that and it winds up being another cost that's heaped on them if it's yeah, done through the private sector. So having, having a zero interest program to do that is pretty cool. Yeah, no, I have nothing but good things to say about the neighborhood lift program. I think it does exactly what its title says and lifting people up um, and the way that they structure it, like with that separate loan. It's just like, yeah, so I had like other liens, like the mortgage assistance program through Dallas. And then that one, those were both separate liens. So I actually had three liens on my house there. Those liens are now gone. I just have my one main lien and I have tons of equity in my house to to do the next thing that I want to do. And that's kind of, you know, if you think about housing, like housing is the main way that people build wealth in this country. And so uh, the more people we can have access to to home ownership, the more people have access to that wealth. So you've been being black in a Dallas neighborhood for like almost 10 years. Have you noticed your neighbor's property values uh, plummeting or um, a spike in um, single parent households or um, street crime? Is there street crime on your street? Weirdly, that is not actually contagious to melanin. I know that's like what? The, the going um, kind of thing that folks believe in, but you know, my neighborhood actually is quite. Um, because I live, I actually live in a townhouse. So this, de this development is actually quite racially and age diverse. We've got retirees, we've got young parents, we've got kind of young couples like myself. Um, and, you know, the more that I think about it, the more that it gets me frustrated because I'm like, these are actually the type of neighborhoods we want to have in Dallas where uh, a young uh, black woman who's straight out of grad school and a Jewish man like my husband can live in the neighborhood and and everyone feels uh, comfortable and everyone's property values continue to go up. You know, housing is one of those things that, and it's it's uh, one of the things that I've been wanting to have sort of a, a larger discussion on, on Loserville for some time, because I think it's uh, it should be probably the main issue of uh, things that are facing our city, right? I think uh, you probably don't have to um, know a whole lot of what's going on to know that we are facing a tremendous cost of living crisis in the city of, of Dallas. And unfortunately, it's something that uh, almost no one who's in any position of power is really devoting a whole lot of time too, right? Um, you know, they pay it lip service every now and then, right? Um, the mayor is too busy worrying about why the media isn't reporting about the decline in crime statistics, even though the media reports about that literally constantly, right? Um, but, you know, uh, sort of having a serious conversation about housing and housing policy is something that uh, the city, in my opinion, has just not done really at all uh, with any amount of seriousness in some time. Um, during a time in which we face this tremendous, tremendous uh, cost of living crisis. Uh, I'm a renter, right? I got my uh, rent renewal statement. Uh, my rent is going to go up 7% uh, again this year, which is super exciting, um, right? Um, and it just, uh, it's really hard for everybody. Fortunately, right, I'm able to to deal with that, right? But many folks, a 7% increase, you know, their incomes are not going up 7% uh, in a year, right? Um just is becoming harder and harder for folks, especially middle income folks, to be able to stay 
in Dallas uh, in near where there are opportunities to work. Yeah, no, I, I think that um, in, in our our report card on the uh, current electeds will be coming out soon. So uh, their housing report card, um, not a lot of great scores. Um, folks do not, I, I don't think they take it seriously enough. And I, and I think it's because, you know, look, it's, it's one very personal, um, people who are homeowners have an outsized effect on council elections, right? Those are the people who are voting. And if you keep them happy, uh, which what keeps them happy is keeping people away from them, then you get reelected. So it's kind of a, you know, misalignment in priorities and misalignment in kind of incentives. It's not incentivized to be the guy who's like, actually, we need housing everywhere of all types, including ADUs, duplexes, quadplexes, apartments, like all of those things, right? Dallas has a dearth of missing middle housing, um, but it's not sexy and it's going to make people, it, people take it really personally. They think, you know, and all the research shows the opposite of this, but they think, oh, if you build this stuff next to me, it's going to make my property values go down. And that's just not the case. I live across the street from a huge, huge apartment complex that is actually primarily immigrants. Um, I would say 80% um, immigrants. And my property value has never been affected by it. So, you know, it's there's a lot of misinformation and it, and it can come from all across the political spectrum. I think that's what's the most interesting about housing. Uh, NIMBYs, there's NIMBYs, there's DIMBYs, like there's all kinds of you know people who are against housing and 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 they're again the 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 incentive right scarcity is what makes your part of what makes your value your uh, rent go up right but scarcity is also kind of what makes your house value go up so you know people want to keep that good old scarcity because then they keep their property values nice and high um and so it's yeah it's not it's not incentivized in, in until it comes yeah, time but... to pay property taxes and then they're mad Right. Then they're mad. They don't want to go up too much because then their property taxes go up too much. No, that's yeah. the that's the new thing. I represent. I, I think I represent actually about half of the affordable housing developers in town at this point. And the new thing we do is we're like, no, man, we're going to invest sixty to a hundred million dollars in this project, and you're going to see a rise in values all around here. And then they're like. Oh, and then we'll get priced out of our houses. And I'm like, oh, okay. So your argument about your property value is now an argument against increasing your property value, which is another way that I know that it's about Black people. It, that's really what it comes down to. People don't want to live next to us. Um, you know, and I think people's perception perceptions are really skewed because we do live in such a racially segregated city that they don't even really understand, like they don't even maybe probably don't even know any black people or have even, you know, live next to a, or let alone spoken to one. Right. And so, um, yeah, like if you live in this really distorted, not racially integrated lifestyle, you're just not going to be able to get on board with, you know, a city that is 30% black, I think, or something like that, like Dallas is at least as a county. Oh, problem. not even. Not. I mean, not even. You, you would think you would think that black people are like 50 percent of the town based on how many times they get arrested, for instance. But no, it's 23 percent. We're and just not that much, but it, it, it really it's people. it's not dissimilar from the percentage of white people in this town. The town is Latino, you know, <laughs> that's that's really what we're dealing with here. So there anyway, there is there is a topic at hand um that has brought us together that we can talk about many other things we can come back to housing all that shit but there was a there was a, a a small freak out your husband was not the only one who had a freak out um i my browser history and my my emails are no longer subject to public records requests 
So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I feel confident in what I have written to my elected officials. And it was a freak out. It was like you're you were going to vote on I-345 on February 22nd for real. With well, the amount the, of yeah, and the consent agenda, in. right? Yeah, and that on the consent agenda. Yeah. So, Philip, talk, talk to folks about what the consent agenda is. <clears> I don't know that that's a pe people think well they're going to vote on it at a council meeting, right? But the consent agenda, different part of a council council meeting. Well, I have always been of the opinion that the consent agenda should not exist. Like, if you have something that is so. Um, uh, wrote that is so um, de rigueur that it doesn't need discussion by the political leaders, then it should probably not be something that has to be submitted to political leaders. Um, frankly, they should have to call every single item every time just in case there's something they missed or there's something that the public wants to comment on, whatever. But the consent agenda is basically the agenda that happens at the beginning of every meeting of every uh, governmental entity um, of which I am aware. This happens in Congress. It happens at the State House. It happens at every city council. And it is routine shit that nobody thinks there will be any discussion on. And it's entirely possible that there will be no discussion on these items but calling them individually is a better idea. What happens is they get bundled into a group and they get passed on a single, generally a voice vote. They are generally unanimous. Um, and they are only placed on there when the city manager or the mayor, depending on who's, who's crafting the agenda, feels that there will be little enough public interest and little enough desire in the council or the board or the whatever to have a discussion of it, and it just gets passed. So would either of you describe uh, the reconstruction or reimagining of I-345 as an item that would not be subject to public discussion or to council discussion? Yeah, the notion of that is preposterous. And I would love to know, and I don't know, Dee Dee, Philip, if you have the backstory, how that even came to be a thing that they thought would be great to put on the consent agenda in the first place. I have no backstory on it. Um, we have been like my group has been working and talking about this and having meetings and and, and stuff about this for for months, literally a year uh, almost. And uh, we have been very vocal and with our council people, um, they, <laughs> we email them quite frequently, as does our membership across Dallas. So the fact that this would be put in as this, I mean, it, to me, it was a very like, it was trying to bury the lead, right? Like really just trying to get it in, um, in the dead of night kind of thing. And, and assuming that, that that's the way to get it done because they knew that if they opened it up, that more neighbors Dallas would be, or <laughs> neighbors for housing, changed our names, neighbors for housing would be um, in the building as would many people across the city. So I think it was just kind of like, I know they're tired of hearing from us, but guess what? That's why I pay taxes. So I can tell you what I think. Yeah, well, and the thing that is, you know, this is a conversation that's been going on for some time, right? So I, I tried to Decades. do a quick read up on the history, right? So. The current debate around 345 started back as far as 2012, right, when TxDOT first started having their public meetings about the future of it. Um, from that, you know, in 2013, Wick Allison, Patrick Kennedy came out uh, and sort of publicly called for removing 345. 
Um, then fast forward to 2016, TxDOT published a city map study, um, which sort of talked about the potential for 345 being removed. Uh, as recently as 2021, um, TxDOT released five different options for 345, um, and as many as 12 council members seem to be in favor of uh, 345's removal um, as recently as 2021. And then fast forward that to May of 22, um, TxDOT announces that they are coming out in favor of what they call the hybrid option or the burial option. Um, council is briefed about that in June of 22, and it seems now at least right that there was a majority of folks that are mm. in favor of supporting TxDOT's preferred hybrid option, which is a pretty wild turnaround to happen in a calendar year, right? To go and from 12. Maybe, and maybe another turnaround this week. And maybe another turnaround this week, right? So, and that was sort of, I think, um, you know, why we had, I wanted to, to, to get you all on this week, right? Was looking at, Philip and I talked, um, was to try and have this conversation this week prior to the vote happening next week. Uh, sure. But that vote has now been put on hold to allow for more time to study the issue after sort of uh, what I would call the sanity caucus of uh, the city council came out and said, well, folks, this is maybe not a great idea to move forward on uh, at this point in time, uh, especially in that manner. Do you want to identify the members of the sanity caucus? Because I think I agree with this framing. The uh, the sanity caucus that maybe our new we've not talked about branding in that way, but I think we should, right? Um, so the sanity caucus, I don't want to miss folks, but we've got Chad and Jesse and Paul and Paula and Omar and Gay. I don't know that Paula was in this group, although we okay. generally consider her to be sane. I think it, it was five, and it's not like they needed more than five, because once you have five, you can make the mayor, you can kind of push the mayor around a little bit. And this mayor is not really inclined to fight five who are fired up about something, which is good. Um, so, uh, and and as many and Janie, bad things as, we, I forget, Janie is who I, I missed in that okay. case, Janie Schultz. As, yep. as many times as we say negative things about the mayor, we should also say some positive things about him from time to time. When there's a movement on his council, he has learned that he is not, he's at least not going to get in their way, I would say is, is the way to put that. And maybe he even supports them. I had a, an interesting discussion with a guy who has a reason to know, who says that on this issue, Eric Johnson is 100% in play, which I found it's, hard to believe, but it's interesting, there are lots of right, people who know more than I do. In his election in 2019, uh, between he and Scott Griggs, right? He was the one who at least was the most, I don't know, wishy-washy uh, in, in that group at the time, right? Yeah, yes. I, I I would agree that with that. Um, and it's funny, you know, like to your point of the, about the turnaround, like, uh, listen, first of all, let's talk city map. Like city map was really like, hey, we can get rid of this highway and and do something better with the land. Like that was, and that was TxDOT. TxDOT wrote that. Those are there. We didn't have to force them. That was their thing. Um, you know, there's some- Oh, we, we fucking forced them. Tr trust yeah. me. <laughs> right, like I am very powerful, but I am not that powerful. No. Um, and so- I, Well, I, I was part of a group that forced them. <laughs> okay, well, I don't have the, I don't have that pool. Um, no, it was just like very, uh, they, you know, listen to a hammer, everything looks like a nail is very much so like, we are a highway building entity. And of course, they're gonna, I mean, they basically changed course and was like, no, we want to build this highway and they're using, 
honestly high pressure high pressure sales tactics to try to get people to to make decisions quickly over something that's so 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 long reaching and, and doesn't even you know consider kind of what the future of not only Dallas but just this this country this world is going to be you know we built the highway system through downtowns <laughs> instead of to downtown mm -hmm. and so we don't have that that you know cohesive uh, collective of businesses and housing and things like that and we do have this super car centric uh world which we know that anytime you have uh cars as the main way for people to get around people who are debt burden people who are low income that's a higher that's a burden on them so you know we're not thinking in ways to like make life easier for dallas residents um and and not, we're not even going to get into the fact that this highway initially was erected by plowing through a black neighborhood um so you know there's just a lot of stuff that goes into it that like when the flip from most people supporting the teardown to not i mean like it was it was super whiplash for us well and the person for whom it would be the most whiplash unfortunately is no longer with us wick allison did an amazing amount of work trying to uh commit council members and candidates to positions on removing I-345 and replacing it with a surface boulevard that, <clears throat> I don't know, we're going to talk in a minute about headcount and kind of how I, I see the vote coming. Um, but it is clear that there was at least a moment at which it appeared that more than one council member had lied to Wick Allison. Uh, who's no longer with us. And so, you know, decide how you feel about that. Um, but it, it's it it's not a positive story, I would say. Agreed. There definitely was some some people changed their tune um, and, and to Wick, Wick did a lot of work to get those those uh, those yeses. And so it's tough. So the plan that was recommended by TextDot, I think, again, just helpful for folks that maybe are not as, as caught up with this issue is sort of what they have called the hybrid option or a burial option, which would basically take 345, uh, same footprint as it is now, but rather than having it be elevated, would to depress it um, and to build basically new overpasses above 345, uh, which would include deck parks uh, to sort of put together streets over it instead of under it. Um, but the big thing with that, with TxDOT is that the city would be responsible for paying for the construction of those those deck uh, parks. Um, and in leaving it as is or burying it, you know, you don't really do anything to add a whole lot of space that would be developable beyond that for other things that aren't highways. Yep, the trench, We're, they're trenching it um and deck park on top and and i think it's very clever marketing of them to call it the hybrid option that's really smart because it makes people think it's a compromise but it is the highway option it's the moving the goalposts option because yeah. what they have what they have done is they've come back and refuted their own published study from just a few years ago to say no we don't have any new data on this at all they don't, they don't have a bit of new data, but we've decided that when we call the removal and boulevard replacement plan feasible under city map, which feasible is bureaucrat speak for um, you can do this, that we are not going to oppose you if you choose this plan, uh, which is the closest thing you can get to an endorsement from bureaucrats. Um, 
they, they, they now have reversed course. And not only have they reversed course, they sent Michael Morris of the North Central Texas Council of Governments, um, along with a textile representative to two, two white guys, by the way, two old white guys, to make the argument that um, turning it into a boulevard was in fact the racist option because there are so many black people in Southeast Dallas who need to get to jobs in the North and that that, that constituted uh, racism. Now, Tyler and I are two overprivileged, overfed white guys who have a podcast. So we're not going to comment on what is racist on this episode. We have it in the past, I admit. But since we have someone who is black, as we pointed out, how, how did that argument sound to you, Ms. Alexander? It was quite infuriating like honestly i was listening to that i like literally i think i might have broken a glass in my hand um mm. you know <laughs> it's just kind of like weaponizing uh kind of equity work that that i've spent my entire life doing um you know if we think about the highway again like i said plowing through a black community and it's just an it's initial erection but also um like the people who are driving to the north if they had opportunities and options to live to to work closer to home, undoubtedly would work closer to home. Um, and so it's not a matter of people want to drive up to the north where I live. It's a matter of that's all they can do because there's highways running through everything, and and a lack of uh, you know economic development and economic opportunities near where they are. And if you look at the the um, the uh, job opportunities that have been like and not only say job economic activity it has the, the highway has caused it to go further and further out right like so the highway is actually pushing things out and away from the people who live in that sector in that segment rather than bringing them closer and to 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 say that the status quo that people have to be super debt burden and, and like truly I, I if you don't know a lot about kind of how cars keep people impoverished cars keep people impoverished um they're expensive they break down um and and having opportunities to go to work and live uh where near where they are already located is the ideal situation um and you know our federal government is 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 on board like the federal government has been looking at you know re um connecting communities and and, and undoing some of the harm that the interstate highway system did uh very targetedly against people of color. Mm -hmm. Well, For I think sure. it also completely ignores the fact that there has been a tremendous amount of economic development that is happening in South Dallas, period, right? Now, you know, the super well, high-paying jobs running Chase, right, or J.P. Morgan, they're not coming to, to South Dallas, right? But between the Inland Port, uh, there are so many huge warehouses, right? Lots of economic development that is happening in South Dallas that I think also, right, I, I think, worrying about this sort of building a, a highway to get from people from Red Oak to Frisco, which just seems insane to me, right? To think that that's a huge population of, of people, right? I think also ignores the fact that there is a lot of economic opportunity that has been developing in South Dallas, right? Um, and would definitely be a place where we could do more of it as, as well. Well, and, the, and there would have been more. 
there there would have been more. There's a there's an there's an opportunity for people to learn from immediately past history here and to look at something that is so closely analogous to what Textot is proposing that you would be a fool not to study it. And this the the case study is US 75, Central Expressway North, which Textot had proposed to be a double-decked facility, not unlike I-35 in Austin, which has been a horrific um, outcome for that community. Um, and the neighbors fought and fought. And unfortunately, you know, back in the 80s, when this happened, we didn't have the same sort of urbanism uh, academia to support the idea that, no, you, you get rid of these highways and you go back to surface streets. Central Expressway, when I moved to Dallas, was a four-lane surface facility. It was limited access, which isn't great, but it's better than a trench. And so if you look at the trench that is US 75 today, what you see is that the property immediately adjacent to the trench, especially as you get a little farther from the, from the center of town, is worth less than the property just a little farther away. It like mm -hmm. it, it it definitely hurts the land that it's near. And by the way, when I used to have to drive on the surface facility to Plano, um, it's now the same amount of time. The trenching it and making it bigger has not improved the accessibility of these areas in any way. And so that's what TxDOT is proposing to do. That's very much what they're proposing to do is to recreate the exact same kind of facility on the I-345 right-of-way. And it's going to have exactly the same effect. And what is that effect? The reason people like Royce West are saying that his constituents need to use US-75 uh, and I-345 to get to jobs is because the biggest employer in the last 40 years on that corridor is State Farm in Plano. Dallas didn't get State Farm because we built this highway. State Farm was able to build out in the hinterlands and attract people living in Southeast Dallas to State Farm to go to work. And, and this, these are not facts that are in dispute. State Farm will tell you this. And this is these are real facts and real people's lives every day happen on US 75 North to get to State Farm. When if we had said bullshit, we're not widening, we're not increasing the capacity of Central, State Farm would have had a real choice to make. It certainly wouldn't have gone to Plano. Now, maybe it would have gone to Red Oak. Maybe it would have gone to Waxahachie. But you know what's easier? Then getting from Southeast Dallas to Plano, it's getting from Southeast Dallas to Red Oak and Waxahachie. Definitely. You know, and it's interesting, like, uh, your, to your point here about the expansion, and I, I wasn't alive when that expansion thing went down. Um, but Jesus Christ. I know. I'm a, I may, I I may die 80s. on this podcast. <laughs> I was born in the 80s, but I wasn't, I was, you know. Um, but yeah, but I, you know, listen, to your point about academia and things like that about urbanism like induced demand 
is a real concept. If you build a wider highway, more people will use it and it will get more congested. That's actually how highways work. That's why no highway expansion has ever decreased travel times. Um, it just doesn't work that way. And, and so those surface roads and having that grid of, of a variety of, of options for people to drive on spreads out that, that um, kind of bottleneck from your highway. And so, you know, it's just very interesting that someone whose whole job, text dot, is to know about driving and highways doesn't understand how induced demand works. Well, and the grandfather, right, of the interstate highway system, Dwight Eisenhower, right, it was somebody who felt like these loops, urban loops were completely against what the idea behind the interstate highway system was to begin with, right? You know, even yeah. he knew that it was a dumb. Yeah, he was like, idea. this is not what I meant, guys. <laughs> And, and and the thing that I, and as Philip points out too, right, the thing that I, I find interesting too, people that live in South Dallas already have the longest commutes to work, right? Uh, and the option would not make that not true at all, right? Uh, of burying it. Improve that the commute. Not, it doesn't improve that at all, right? Um, and you know they throw around these statistics like an eight percent increase in commute time. When we talked about this in the summer. You know, or five percent, right? Five percent increase in, in. Oh no, I was gonna say that's like four minutes, oh, though. Yeah, four minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So I, at the time, we were talking about. I had a friend who was living um, over by the art park um, in Trinity Groves, right? And I'm like, if we tore down 345 for me to get there, right, it would make it a four minute longer trip for me to get from where I live in East Dallas to Trinity Groves, right? And it's like, are we really, really worrying about four minutes and putting? behind you know to sacrificing the opportunity to build housing for thousands of people right realizing billions of dollars of worth of economic development and tax revenue for the city for the sake of a four minute increase in commute time is just insane to me right but TechStop relies so much in their study you know on a couple of things you know one they talk about survey data a lot which to me, it's just complete and total BS, right? Because survey data is only good as how many people actually take the survey, right? And you can really make surveys say anything that you want them to say. It's the same thing, Philip and I have talked about this before. When you're on the council and people give you a survey data, right? They're like, well, you know, your constituents say that they want this. And it's like, okay, well, three people that took the time to complete the survey said that. Would not right? pass an uh, entry-level undergrad class for statistics. Yeah, right. That is not how, yeah, that's not how that, how that works, right? Um, and, and to say, well, that helps us know more about what constituents want than the things that people actually say to us, right? One. Two is based on sort of the hypothetical that that because of the population increase, the number of vehicles using 345 would increase over time, right? Which again is assuming that cars are still the primary mode of, of transportation for folks in uh, the future, right? Which is a bit pretty big assumption to make it as well, right? Um, you know, I, I guess it, it just seems like the data that they are relying on to make their claims as to why keeping it in place is a bad idea could be described as specious at best. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I mean, look, the, the thing is, TechStot, TechStot is such a dishonest broker. And they get very offended when I say this, but they are totally captured by industry. and their their primary job is to is to report how many million cubic feet of concrete got poured last year. And that's the thing that they report to the governor. And there's there are actually reports that show this. So I, I, this is this is not me making this up or being dramatic. They are there 
to make sure that HV Zachary has enough work every year. Um, HV Zachary, for people who aren't in the business, is maybe the state's biggest highway contractor. Um, they have an institute at Texas A&M University called the Texas Transportation Institute that is fully captured by industry, that's funded by industry, that's primary job is to produce twice a year a survey of what they claim are the commute times in every Texas city. And the governor signed a, 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 an initiative that he calls the Clear Lanes Project that commanded TxDOT not to invest in anything that was other than expanding highway capacity. They, they're not allowed to invest in public transportation anymore. They're not allowed to invest in pedestrian safety. They're not allowed to look at any of this shit. And in the last few months, what they have done is specifically threatened Austin and Dallas and Houston with, we will simply not fund any of your projects if you choose to buck our recommendation. Now, legally, the governor doesn't have the authority to override local choice in uh, preferred alternatives. So th it, this is not, it, this is them bluffing. They're trying to bluff us. But what they have said is, if you choose to tell us that you want a surface boulevard, we will simply do nothing. And they have also said that because we spent a few million dollars over the last few years, we now don't have to do anything for 25 years. When in 2011, they were telling us that if we didn't spend $100 million immediately, the whole fucking thing might fall down. So these are not honest people in any way. And I know that some of the engineers at TxDOT that I've interfaced with would really be offended to hear me say that. But let me back it up by saying, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> like, seriously, you cannot be this willfully blind to the way that your agency works that you say, oh, I'm just an honest bureaucrat working in the system. No, fuck you. If you just pray that the Republicans retain control of the state for as long as fucking possible, because the minute I have the opportunity, you're first against the wall. Yeah, I, I, they are not, they have not been honest actors at all in this entire process. Um, and, and I think that's the thing that's really frustrating is that, you know, listen, everybody on my group has a full-time job and um, their full-time job is spewing lies about this. Our And our full-time jobs are not. Our full-time jobs are taking care of kids and being therapists. So um, it, it is very frustrating for, for them to just really, I mean, they, they are bullying to your point. Like they are literally trying to hold our foot of the fire about this um, and, and offering a, a my way is the highway kind of situation. Well put, my way is the highway. That should be their tagline. I, I'm very good <laughs> at branding. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> okay, so I think the thing, so, okay, you and Adam have this group that is dedicated to more housing. It's just my opinion, but it's been the opinion of the show for a considerable period of time that there are three basic problems in Dallas and in most of urban America. Number one is housing. It's followed pretty closely by jobs. And the third, which is not far behind at all, is transportation. 
And if you fourth, frankly, is healthcare, and all of these are actually another way of saying income inequality. But that's that's a little much. Well, Philip, you didn't mention crime. You didn't mention crime. You're right. <laughs> you're I will right. not mention it. <laughs> so you guys have concentrated on what I consider to be the primary problem of our urban America, and actually, even America. suburban and rural America actually has this problem. Also, is housing. What is the relation? Why are you all fired up about I-345 as it relates to housing? I think I know the answer, but you all have put more thought into this recently than I have because I now like go and make money and, and other kinds of, uh, you know, bourgeois pursuits. Um, well, we're glad that you still do this one pursuit. This is great. No, so um, yeah, no. So the way that we look at it, right, is that like, yes, housing is in itself, it, it, one, a very huge and interconnected problem with um, transportation. Um, the way that our cities are built is because of the way that the highways and transportation was built, right? And so if you think about how white flight works, right, like white flight only can happen because there's highways um, and, and things like that, right? So that's how property values get, get um for, for black communities get decimated because you know they just we're gonna move all the nice stuff away from you guys and put it at the end of this highway in in Plano and I, I grew up in Plano so I was a beneficiary of a lot of this terrible things um but um so so the way that we the reason that we got really initially fired up about it was one we we weren't because everybody was on board with tearing it down so we just didn't think about it and then in 2021 everyone flipped the script um and, and we do see it as an opportunity to remake uh, that portion of Dallas in a way that is more like makes housing um, more abundant, more abundant, right? We can build housing down there. We can put housing near where people live. We can put housing um, near where downtown is, right? So we, we saw it as an opportunity and really like a really large opportunity that does not come around. I mean, listen, we're, this is not, this highway thing, if this trench goes in like that's it right like i don't have another opportunity to intervene and we just think that like and there's a lot of research that shows that like the biggest economic driver that you can put in in your city is housing having people live in places is an economic engine in itself and so uh it really was kind of like intertwined with like our vision of the city of dallas having housing that's abundant and affordable and near the center of the city um and if and to be even a little bit more pointed, um, close to those folks in South Dallas who have been pushed out, who who's, uh, you know, black folks whose properties were torn down to put the highway in in the first place. Um, so so we were really just gung ho about the just opportunity to have that land be used for housing. We know we have a, a like not only a housing shortage, but like a like the homelessness crisis is like insanely high and if the city were able to put their thumb on the scales here right we get more land we put in things like permanent supportive housing right we're making a we're taking a huge dent into that um to that homelessness crisis as well so it was kind of like a thing where it's just like let's not let this opportunity pass us by um to, to make something good with that land and to make it a you know a, a place that me and my husband like we he's from boston um though i'm from here like we specifically live here because we want to live here and we want to have a city that's like um not a city where we have to drive freaking everywhere like that has walkable blocks and that has public transit and that has affordable and abundant housing so well a fun thought exercise for folks to do to that end is to just pull up google maps right and look at downtown dallas and 345 and imagine how much land is freed up for development if that highway is turned into uh, a street level boulevard 
it's lovely. It's quite so lovely. So one of one of the, one of the things that people so it, it, here's a Dallas thing that always happens. Uh, an idea that might be beneficial <clears throat> to residents of Southern Dallas is floated. And leadership in Southern Dallas immediately characterizes it as an outsider idea that will actually harm people in Southern Dallas. Um, and that has certainly been, uh, it, you know, the, the charge leader on this has been Royce West. And he has tried to characterize this as an attack on the employment opportunity for his constituents. Um, the... The other thing that has happened, and he has said this and others have said this, I've talked to people who I consider to be really movement people who believe this also, that the if freeing up real estate for development happens after a teardown of I-345 and a removal, that it will also not be equitable, that it will not benefit the people that we are holding up as the reason to do this sort of equity thinking, um, and that it will only benefit wealthy developers. You got a response? I do. So listen, can it go that way? We're only, it's a, it's a land grab. That's what I hear people say. It's a land grab, you know? Land grab. Rich, I get rich. And listen, can it go that way? Absolutely. Do I blame folks in South Dallas for being weary? No, they have been given the short end of the stick a million times. So like, I, I understand that sentiment from, you know, from the general populace, right? But there is a way to do this, right? Like we can be more intentional about that land utilization, right? We can have PFCs, we can have um, permanent support housing, we can have, um, you know, these kind of more um, progressive uh, types of, of ways of, of doing the land utilization that makes it equitable um, to make sure that folks can afford, right? So I, an example that I love to use because it's my, my own life is I, I live in a townhouse. It's a smaller little spot. So it's more in the at affordable range for, for more people, right? Like if you're building different kinds of housing, um, different sizes, that missing middle, and then also uh, partnering that with things like uh, like a, a PFC or whatever, like those are the, like there are ways to make it so that it does not cause harm, right? Um, and I think people just like lack creativity or intellectual rigor to like think through just because it's a hard problem. They're like, oh, it's gonna go this way. And it's like, right, it could definitely go that way. But if there, are, there are things that we can do um, with that land to make sure that it does have that, uh, uh, equity built into it. Another uh, very creative way and a, a way that I'm kind of like really into right now is a land trust, right? Like if you make it a land trust, folks get equity out of the building, the land stays at the same value, it keeps prices at a moderate uh, range. Uh, so, so there are some creative ways that you can use different kind of uh, policy tools to make sure that it, it does benefit folks um, from from specifically from uh, communities of color and low income folks like those are the ones who are getting pushed out right like those are the ones and I'd say this this is a, a kind of a sad statistic but um, I used to work for the county I worked for the county for four years. Um, no one who works for Dallas County lives. I worked in the juvenile department, none of them lived in Dallas couldn't afford it. None of them, not a single one of them. If you ask them, I was the only Dallas resident. They all lived outside because there wasn't that supply of housing that that they could afford. Um, 
in, in their range, right? And so it, it's one of those things where like you have to try to to do something different. And if you try to do the way that it's done historically, yes, it will go the same way, but we can do things like land trusts and, and uh, PFCs and permanent supportive housing. Well, I mean, just a, a simple solution is, it, so the land underneath the, the structure is mostly owned by Textot. There is some land that is burdened by the facility that could be built upon, which is not buildable today, if the facility were gone and by facility i mean the fucking gross freeway um and if if you did that then you could what you could say is the publicly owned land the textile land gets transferred to the pfc the public facilities corporation of the city of dallas from there it has to comply with pfc underwriting PFC underwriting requires a minimum of 25% affordability, should be higher, by the way. Um, and the affordability uh, guarantee is 75 years. So this is this is a way to create some housing that will for the, the I mean, I'm not going to be here 14 years from now, probably. You, you all have a better chance of seeing the future than I do. But the, it, it has a chance to create a, a, a neighborhood that is sort of permanently mixed income, permanently mixed use, um, that, that can be that kind of supportive place that isn't, you know, subject to the waves of gentrification, subject to waves of blight, you know, the, the, these, these, these peaks and crests in the real estate market are totally artificial. They're, you know, they're, they're the, they're the, the product of the financial markets, because the, the, the basic ingredients of them are dirt and buildings, dirt and buildings don't change value day to day. They just don't. It's people's, it's people's interior impressions of their value that change. And if we can have stable, safe, wonderful places for people to live, our biggest problem will not be um, blight or lack of employment or the the things that that have bedeviled our cities for so long. It will be the issue of how do we keep rich, entitled assholes out of this neighborhood. I'm I'm much I trade that problem. I trade the problems in we have now for that problem in a heartbeat. Um, 75 years is a long time. 75 years is a lifetime, you know? It so. might be too long. I've heard this argument from developers and I'm, I'm willing to have the argument, but it is the, it, that is the underwriting today. Yeah. Um, that gives people a lot of, a lot of runway to get their lives on track, a lot of time to get things going. Um, I think, like I said, as a person who's benefited from a housing program, like my life is on a trajectory that it would never have taken otherwise. And I think a lot of other people would, like you said, that 25% people who are living downtown, like we've got places you can get on the train like that, that changes their life for the positive. So, um, I, you know, what you won this week is a, is a delay, yep. right? Um, what is the math behind sort of the state of, uh, state of uh, play as it stands now? To the Ooh, I so want to hear Didi speculate on this. Yeah, so there's, it's, it's, uh, so let, I'll say this, the Sanity Caucus <clears throat> really, really, really wants to hear about the 
Boulevard plan. And they're pretty freaking tired of TxDOT saying that that's not an option. So I, I will say that the Sanity Caucus is definitely like, I mean, they, they asked for a delay because they do want to seriously consider the alternative. Um, so, so I guess I'm gonna put those in our column. I would say, you know, mayor is a wild card. I do not know which way he would go, um, but he's in play. And uh, I think everyone else is kind of made their their um, visions pretty clear. Karen Mendelson did a whole diatribe around how, whatever, I use 345 to get to the city. That's why I'm late to meetings. I was like, you know what you could do if we had good public transit, you could just take the train. But what do I know? <laughs> also, I know where she lives and she never drives on I-345. I know she doesn't. I'm like, girl, that's how you get downtown. What are you talking? You gonna try to play me? I've been here my she whole is a, She's a totally toll road person. Yeah, she definitely pays the tolls. Um, so yeah, so so I, I think that like, yeah, I think we have, you know, five or six folks that are just like, I'm not going either way. I just want y'all to be text dot to be a good faith actor and give us the real deal because you gave us city map and said that this was feasible. And now you're saying it's not and that doesn't make sense. But that's the problem that I have with the current state of the debate. I'm very excited that these this group of people had stood up and said, "No, we're gonna we're gonna slow this thing down." They're trying um, to lock us in. Uh, you know, this wouldn't even take place for like ten years, and like, there's all mm -hmm. these things. It's like, why are we locking ourselves into this decision? We've got time to make the decision. <laughs> well, and if they do wind up locking us into a decision, then the those of us who are who are veterans of the Trinity Toll Road fight will lock in for a ten year fight, and we will beat you after some of you are already dead. Um, so you know, there, there are people who are advocating very strongly for this who will be dead by the time this is decided. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just um, saying I'm a young, healthy 30-something. So, <laughs> so I, I was counting it today and I was trying to count it in two different ways. I was trying to count it as the people who I don't know where they are, I'm going to put them in the win column. I'm going to put them with us. Oh, okay. And it's nine. Okay. And if I exclude them from the win column, if they're not going to be brave, it's five. Yeah. So I don't think it's either one of those numbers, quite frankly. I think that if this thing lives, it's going to live at eight votes. Yeah. Um, and I think if it dies, it's going to die at five votes. I think that's about where it is. Yeah. And I am... I honestly, I'm mystified with a project that has received this much attention and this much specific political attention where you had, you know, contributor groups saying, we need to know where you are on this. I am fascinated. There, there are three or four members of council who have said one thing at one time and another thing at another time. Like that's, that's extraordinary. Yeah, went on record once way and went on record the other way. Um, it's, uh, you know, and to to that point, uh, we're about to do our endorsement cycle for uh, Neighbors for Housing. Um, and these are the kinds of things that people should be aware of. Like, I don't like, listen, I don't stand for you not standing on your guns. Like, you've got to you've got to say what you mean and mean what you say. And, and yeah, that's it will be it will be in my write up. You guys will be first. first <laughs> 
if, if we can call upon the listeners of of uh, Loserville, that mighty army of, of yes of folks, right? Who are the council members that need to hear the most from folks about this? Hmm. In a perfect world where we actually could change people's minds, we got to hit the King Arnold's and the Atkins of the world. I don't think they can be moved. So with that being said, uh, I think you should, if you're, you know, if you're, um, Paula, if you're, if you have Paula, she's definitely someone to reach out to. She's on the transportation. She's open to listening. Um, she's been voting right. She's been voting right. Yeah. So Paula is definitely one to, to hit up. Um, Eric Johnson, Mayor Eric Johnson is, is someone who has, has been open-minded uh, about this. So definitely um, letting Eric Johnson know, Mayor Eric Johnson know. Um, let's see, going down the list here. I honestly cannot, I just, do not know what Casey's up to. Like, I don't feel like I've heard anything from him. Um, so maybe, maybe Casey, I don't know. Uh, Casey may be advocating for this to come back to council after he's gone. Right, he'll be, exactly. He'll be gone in June. He'll be gone. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't think it's his favorite topic. He's never been like big on transportation as far yeah. as I can remember. So he may not, he may be happy for this to be delayed until push his, it out. His 10 years over. I, I would I would suggest a couple other people. So the, the, the villain in this story is TxDOT, and their governing body is the Texas legislature. So all of very few of the legislators in the Texas House or the Texas Senate have been forced to say one way or another where they are. Are we in the state house folks? Yeah. See, hit oh, the well, state house. I can just tell well. you. Ana Maria Ramos is a fantastic person and she will listen to you. Um, I 100% agree with that. I would also hit the congressional people because there's federal money in this stuff. Right. Yep. And I got to tell you, Jasmine Crockett. one of my favorite people on earth is Jasmine Crockett. Yep. I have spent a lot of my time walking, talking, and fundraising for Jasmine Crockett. And she's not there. She needs to hear from constituents. Yes, if you live in 30s. Um, because, she, because she has certainly heard from Royce West. Uh, and and if you live in Congressional District 30 and you think that this might be an opportunity to improve this part of town, which sits in Congressional District 30, by the way, mm -hmm. um, then she needs to hear from you because she has heard from the worst voices in this debate. Um, and she's not a person who normally makes mistakes on stuff affecting working people. And this would be a bad one, in my opinion. Agreed. Yeah, if we're going federal, I think Jazz Jazz is a great, I think she, she can be a great ally. And I think, like, to your point, she does care about the, the everyman. If you, if you have, if you're a person who's in Austin or San Antonio, or you have friends down there, one way to affect this debate is to call on uh, Greg Kassar the new congressional member from down there who is dealing with I-35 in quite a similar way that it's being presented up here and has been totally on the side of the people who want to minimize the impact of the highway on the urban space. And Greg and Jasmine talk all the time. And so that, you know, you have to think about the way that people's minds get made up. 
because we all think that we're these like steel traps and none of us are. We all respond to the the place that we're in and the people that we talk to. And so if you can, if you have a way to get to somebody in a different way than than me and Tyler and Dee Dee have, then exercise it. Go ahead and exercise it. You're just as valuable an advocate as we are. I mean, good gravy. This this is a podcast. Podcasts, <laughs> podcasts don't change anything. They do not. And to your point, every, uh, so we had a great response from people. We act when we activated them and say, Hey, reach out to your council people. I'm not saying that it didn't, I did or didn't move the needle, but people respond to those, those messages. Um, cause someone has to take them in. They're like, like required to listen to you. That's what we pay them to do. So, um, <laughs> like definitely exercise that. Um, yeah, one person, you know, like I said, this group is just me and my husband, but, uh, we are just two people and, and our group is not, is, is only as powerful as, you know, the people that we join up with and 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 let people know so state house if you have a state house representative that you have a relationship with or even if you don't or you're in 30 we're not in i'm not in 30 i'm still in 32 but i'm moving to 30 which i'm very excited about um jasmine is a great person to reach out to or honestly reach out to everyone so i just have a form letter and i just send it to everyone um yeah. and i'm just that kind of gal so and where can they find that stuff dd Yes. Yeah, so if you are uh, interested in getting one of those form letters, you can join our group, uh, Neighbors for Housing. Um, our website is neighborsforhousing.org. And uh, there is a 345 like sign up. I want to be involved about this 345 thing. And then you will get uh, able to get that template and send in your, your thoughts to your respective um, representatives. Um, and then also just be up to date with what we got going on. This is not our only fight. We've got a lot of other stuff that we're into here, um, but this is top of mind. We're super glad that it got pushed out. This gives us the runway to to help change help change the minds and you guys can help. We really like that. Uh, you know, the other thing too, I think we probably don't talk about on this program enough, but as we talk about the legislature in particular, uh, if you are someone who listens to Loserville and is represented by a Republican, which, you know, I may be talking to like three people, right? But it is important for people to talk to Republican representatives too, right? And to build those relationships because they are the folks who at the state level do make policy in this state, right? And unless or until we change that, right, we have to learn to get along with those folks. And so it doesn't give you an excuse if you're represented by a Republican, and you're a Democrat or a Republican, don't take this off either, right? This isn't permission for you to right. just not to not talk to those folks. If you or if you make an or... argument that's complex mm -hmm. enough, they could have a stroke while you're sitting there. <laughs> then we get a runoff. No, uh, yeah, if you live in Morgan or Angie's district, we need your voices as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Um, I, Dee Dee, thank you so much for coming back. And uh, please tell your wonderful dude that we want to have him on in the future. And we will. We will have many opportunities for this. He's off all uh, summer. Give, get him out of my hair. Hell yeah. <laughs> we'll, we will do it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Sunshine, take me to another place in my life.